Hello, my name is Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Live to 110 podcast. You can find me on livetoone110.com. And today we're going to be talking about our small farms in danger of going extinct. And our guest today is Rocky Angelucci. I met him on Jimmy Moore's Live in La Vida Low Carb Cruise. And I was very moved by his presentation regarding how Big Agra is pretty much taking over the agricultural sphere and helping to put small farms out of business by creating regulations that are very expensive for them to follow. And many small farms are going out of business. So we're going to talk about some of those issues today on the podcast. And I'm really, really excited. I found an editor finally for my book at Waterstone Publishing. Um, this is a, a huge milestone. And so hopefully, um, if all the, the edicts go right and the book looks good for them, like that they can use it, um, I will be getting an agent. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. I was going to just go the self-publishing route on Amazon, but things have taken a good turn. And so I'm hoping very soon. Um, hopefully it'll be now in 2015 because the publishers take a while to, uh, you know, get their books ready and ready for press, etc. So it's going to be very likely a delay in publishing, but I'm very much looking forward to going that traditional publishing route if they will have me. <laughs> and so today, everyone, our guest is Rocky Angelucci. Um, he's a, you know, an everyday 40 something person who became frustrated, much like yourself, at today's health and nutrition advice. It's just all over the place. So it's very difficult to make sense of what is good advice and what is bad advice. And after near several years of research, he has, and self-testing, he has written a book that we're going to discuss today called Don't Die Early that he released in 2012. And he's not a doctor or a healthcare professional. Um, he is, has a background in chemistry and mathematics, and he is currently a technical writer. He's got, uh, you know, has worked in the fields of medical device development, nanotechnology, and software development. And what he has really been determined to do is separate good advice from the bad. And in the past couple of years, he's had some really incredible improvements in his lipid health, his cardiovascular fitness, body mass, blood glucose, and inflammation indicators, which I'm sure many of you would enjoy. And he has described his whole journey and how to do this in his book, Don't Die Early. And much of what he's done has ignored conventional medical advice in favor of more forward-thinking clinicians and researchers that are practicing today. And many of those we met on the low-carb cruise. Uh, Dr. Eric Westman and daughter, Dr. Adam Nally and Jeffrey Gerber. Um, they were talking all about how to improve your health parameters with a low-carb diet. And so, so, so much, Rocky. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rocky. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and, and you know, why you've become so passionate about the rights of small farmers? Like you mentioned, I'm just an everyday guy. I became interested in um, a healthier lifestyle a few years ago when I started writing Don't Die Early. And I started investigating the root causes of the diseases that plague us today. And it became very obvious that probably the biggest factor in our health is the food we choose to eat. And from there, it awakened in me a desire and a love for healthy, high-quality foods that have been lacking in, in most people's diet today. And from there, it was a very short leap to recognize that the people who produce those foods, the small independent farmers, are very much under attack today, economically, 
legislatively, and often violently under attack. And as you mentioned, they are on a fast path to becoming extinct. Yeah. Yeah. And it really blew me away when, uh, like yourself, I started uh, reading about healthy food and organic food. And then you happened upon articles about how a, a raw dairy farm was raided and um, or shut down. And you can't help but feel for these small farmers that, as you know, they probably don't have a huge margin. Um, they don't have a huge bank account and, you know, they're making a living. And yet the government comes in and shuts them down or, or takes all of their inventory. Um, why don't you tell us some of the issues surrounding small farmers today, like some of the, the startling statistics in America's food production? I was stunned to learn that 90% of these small dairies have gone out of business since the 1970s in favor of the large, massive dairies, and that 85% of the food we eat today is produced by a mere 12% of the farms in existence. These are clear indications that the small farmer is being replaced by the growing large agribusiness. Yeah. Yeah. And so what about um, like on farmaid.org? Yeah, you said you already said that. You said that twelve percent of the farms in the U.S. produce eighty-five percent of our nation's food. It's that's unbelievable, and we see that in the genetically modified food. I'm sure there's a large percentage of that is GMO food that we find in so many restaurants and on so many plates today that are making people sick. So, what are some of the issues facing small farmers today that are forcing many of them to go out of business? I think a couple of the biggest things are. Probably the food safety efforts that the federal government is making that are so substantially skewed in favor of the large agribusiness and are so damaging to the small farmer. Now, the reason for this is not a mystery to me. If you look at the rosters of these organizations of the FDA and the USDA and the policymakers, you'll see that they are a who's who of key people from large industry who are ro rotating in the revolving door between government service and large industry. So naturally, when a set of rules and regulations are drafted to promote food safety, they're going to be skewed in favor of those with the greatest benefit, Yeah, the large agribusiness. I was shocked when I was watching your presentation that Hillary Clinton actually was an attorney for Monsanto, and now she's you know big in government. I mean, it was the first lady for many, many years. And uh, it just, it was very shocking to me. It kind of took her down a few notches in my book. I really, really liked her. Um, but it's sad that uh, so many people are working for Monsanto and some of these large agribusinesses. Um, Monsanto grow, uh, you know, produces GMO seeds, genetically modified, genetically engineered seeds. And then these people that work for that, that agency go into government and that are making the legislation. And this is all planned. It's a big conspiracy um, can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe the FDA position on individual freedoms? The FDA is rather startling in their, in their opinion of our individual liberties when it comes to food. In their legal responses to various challenges, they've made, made it clear that they believe we have absolutely no right to personal freedom of food choice. We have no right to unfettered access of foods of all kinds. In fact, they say historically, as citizens of the country, we have never had the right to eat whatever foods we wish. It's always been up to the government to decide what foods are safe. And even if we could show that we have a fundamental right 
to foods of our own choosing under, say, constitutional right to health and pursuit of liberty, pursuit of happiness, that their right to ensure public health trumps all of that. We very simply are only allowed to eat what they choose. And most startling was even private individuals, say two folks who wanted to share the cost of a cow and then share the milk that the cow produces. If the government says that's not allowed, then that's not allowed. Even if there's no commerce involved or money exchanging or or product being sold whatsoever. We have no right to private food contract. Well, tell us that story you talked about in your presentation where there was a farm in Vermont and the, the family purchased a bunch of sheep from Europe, or it was sheep, correct? And that they wanted to, you know, have a sheep farm and grow sheep's milk and, you know, or produce sheep's milk and things like that. What happened to them? This is documented in Kristen Candy's wonderful uh, documentary, Farmageddon. But the family, the, the wife was a mad cow researcher, and the husband was a PhD um, animal scientist. They decided to import some sheep from New Zealand and um, start a sheep dairy. And the sheep were perfectly healthy, quarantined before they came over here and examined for months and examined here after they arrived for months. They were perfectly healthy. But in order to appear competent and active in the public eyes, the USDA decided that they needed to take a stance against mad cow disease, which was a headline news item at the time. So to appear active to uh, protect us from mad cow disease, the, the USDA decided that these sheep were a risk even though sheep had never been infected with mad cow disease in the history of the planet Earth, and even though these sheep had been proven to be completely healthy with numerous tests, they simply decided, we're going to come to your farm, confiscate these sheep, and destroy them. The family, of course, responded with a, a legal challenge and called in testimony of experts and tried to convince the USDA that they were they were wrong in, in their actions. And without even waiting for the legal machinery to con- uh, complete its uh, investigation of the matter, the USDA showed up at 4 a.m. with armed federal agents, seized the sheep, removed them, and destroyed them without any cause whatsoever. God. It's just heartbreaking because you know, these families work so hard. These are very expensive animals, and they're just immediately put out of business. And this is happening all the time. And it's not just happening in the United States. I just read about a case of a woman in Canada earlier this year, the exact same thing, without any evidence whatsoever that her animals were were diseased in any way. And despite evidence to the contrary, that they were perfectly healthy, they were seized and destroyed. And she's even facing uh, criminal penalties for trying to sequester these healthy animals so they wouldn't be seized while she was challenging the process in, in the legal system. Yeah, and so why is this happening? I mean, obviously, uh, there's uh, big agra. They, they pay to get certain laws passed. They lobby to get laws passed. And, um, and they, do, they do other, I guess, you know, if, if you will, corrupt things to put small farmers out of business. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I think it's a number of factors. As we've talked about, the revolving door between industry and and the policymakers obviously gives them a very skewed perception as well as financial interest. But I think also politically, these organizations feel like if we're not acting in some way, 
we're not showing the public that we're in charge and that we're the experts and they have to constantly be doing something. There's such a fear of fear of, of appearing incompetent that they'll act rashly. And um, I, I think there's an author, uh, David Freeman, who wrote a book called Wrong, Why the Experts Often Fail Us. And a companion book to that that I think is a wonderful book is called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Mm. And these I've two seen books, that. These two books examine really well how we might be really wonderful individuals, but as we form collections and agencies and policymaking groups, we get dumber and more evil, if you will, because politics and ego and fear take over. And as organizations, we do things that we as individuals would find horrific. Yeah, yeah. And what I think another thing that's horrific is the Food Safety Modernization Act. <laughs> I think um, it's going to do nothing to ensure food safety. Um, can you talk a little bit about this, these laws that are, um, you know, being enacted right now? Absolutely. The Food Safety Modernization Act came out of a number of foodborne illnesses that occurred in the 2000s that had alarmed a lot of people. So the FDA decided they needed to step in and make our food safer. Well, with predictable results, the details of the act are again skewed in favor of the large business and crushingly burdensome to the small farmer. In fact, the USDA, in analyzing the FDA's Food Safety Modernization Act, said they don't believe it's going to make any difference in our health whatsoever, despite the burden it places on these small farmers. And examples are small farmers who use organic practices are being forced to treat their compost as harmful materials because it has bacteria in it. So they're being told <laughs> that organic compost has to set idle and unused for up to nine months before they're allowed to use it so that all the bacteria in this compost dies. Composting has been used for centuries, yeah. for thousands of centuries, without any unsafe results. Nature is bacteria. Harmful yeah. bacteria is usually driven out by beneficial bacteria in our bodies and in the soil. It's a natural part of fermentation and composting into, into demand that only approved pesticides and fertilizers be used at the cost at the expense of organic farming is it's just outrageous. Yeah, because you know, we're always hearing in the news about salmonella in spinach and eggs and other outbreaks. I mean, you know, we know that most of these outbreaks are not happening on smaller farms, yet they must comply with the difficult regulations that have little chance of even presenting the, preventing them on factory farms. So how are these outbreaks being handled in a way that hurts small farmers? They're the small farmer is most affected by legislation that feels good but does nothing. Um, small egg farmers are being told that a big risk to, to hens is that they actually interact with nature, and that's bad. <laughs> so pastured hens who might interact with other birds need to be entirely covered, entirely. An entire pasture needs to be covered so that they can be safe like the tens of thousands of hens in the large factory producers have nice safe hens in these warehouses where the hens are crammed together, thousands of them in, in, in a square meter. and um, Running around in their feces. So this skewed perspective that defines 
factory hens wallowing in, a, in their own feces as, as health, healthy and free pasture-raised hens that truly roam and eat bugs and, and enjoy the outside is, is a risk. That kind of skewed perspective permeates the Food Safety Modernization Act. Yeah, and so so what exactly is happening with the the free range hens um, by you know by pressuring to eliminate the free range hens by claiming that outdoor hens must be entirely covered? Um, how is that costing the small farmers money? Well, how how many small farmers with razor thin margins can afford to cover a pasture entirely cover a pasture so hens can roam freely? Yeah. Moreover. From what I understand, not being a farmer myself, it makes a lot of sense to constantly rotate where the hens are feeding so that they don't overburden the soil and so their feces don't build up. And the hens might be in one part of the pasture for a few days or a week and then move to another part of the pasture for a few days a week so that the soil can constantly be renewed and the grasses they trample can come back and it keeps the soil and the environment healthy as well as the hens healthy. It totally crushes that entire model of, of a hen's life that has been the way hens have lived for centuries. Yeah, yeah. and it's funny because uh, these, uh, this Modernization Act is trying to prevent salmonella outbreaks, but the, the hens that are having the salmonella issues for the most part are the eggs grown in these factory farms. Exactly, and their solution there, let's irradiate the eggs with microwave or let's pasteurize the eggs with heat and let's give our hens more antibiotics and let's spray them down with bleach. Yeah. And I, I love how they feed them arsenic also to make them grow faster. Because um, I have some of my clients that eat a lot of chicken, uh, just regular chicken. They have high arsenic levels on their hair tests. Um, we don't know whether it's from that, but I know you know the people that love to go to El Pollo Loco constantly, <laughs> they tend to have a lot of arsenic because they're eating those gross factory farm chickens. So it's yeah, it's amazing how how these animals are raised. Uh, you know, and I also keep hearing in the news about um, you know uh, you know about the, how the small farms are seized by the government. Um, you know, and there's a, a lot of uh, other examples um, as opposed to you know in addition to the one that you mentioned about the sheep. Um, what about the 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 government seizing the raw dairy farms uh, and going in and stealing or stealing pretty much and seizing all of their dairy or raw cheeses and things of that nature. Can you tell us a little bit about the issues surrounding the raw dairy farms and why it's illegal in some states? Some states have passed laws that say raw milk, which is primarily the milk that everyone drank until the late 50s, is, is dangerous. So it's illegal. And obviously, that means they then have the power to treat folks who, who produce and try to sell raw milk uh, the same as, as drug dealers, if you will. And um, I'm a drug dealer. <laughs> I prescribe it to my clients. <laughs> the, um, and what amazes me is, if you examine the statistics, they're just simply not there that raw milk is a health risk. But I can buy raw beef, I can buy raw chicken, I can eat raw beef, I can eat raw eggs, and no one blinks. I don't know why this has become such a, a, a highly contentious issue with such a violent, often violent response. And again, I think that's back to the, the sociology of these organizations. They feel like they need to exhibit power and control because it helps them um, 
look competent in the eyes of the uh, the public. We're they're keeping us safe. So, what can we do as individuals to stop the government takeover of our food supply and get involved? I think the first thing we should do is recognize the value and the benefits of these high quality foods that they're producing. And then once we do that, we should stop buying foods that we don't agree with. That will put more financial strength in the hands of these farmers. We'll start buying from them directly as much as possible. We'll restore, I think, the way it should be, the farmer raising the food and the customer buying the food from the farmer. We should also be a lot more vocal to our, to our politicians, to our policymakers. What they're doing is wrong. And hearing from a few hundred of them of us doesn't sway them at all. But hearing from tens of thousands of this starts to get their attention. They very simply need to be held accountable for what they're doing. Well, I belong to cornucopia.org. Um, they're a wonderful organization that that fights for small farmers' rights and food legislation to protect uh, you know, healthy food. Are there any other organizations that you would recommend that people can get involved? I'm a big fan of the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, who, who helps defend the right of the farmer to sell to the customer he chooses, as well as the Farm to Consumer Defense Fund, and um, Food Democracy Now as well. Uh, Food Democracy Now is very vocal in the, uh, helping to pass legislation that requires GMO foods be labeled yeah. so that we as consumers have the right to choose what we put in our bodies. Yeah, yeah it's amazing how any legislation for labeling GMO foods is completely quashed by the big agro spending tens of millions of dollars to win uh, you know, voter favoritism. Um, so it's just just baffling to me. Uh, but I know one day we will prevail because people want to know what's in their food. And um, I think it's very important, like you said, to, to patronize the small farmers. Go to, small, go to farmers markets. Um, buy your food from people that you know, the, in the vendors in the farmers markets. And stop going to these large supermarkets that are all from Big you know, all the food that are supplied by Big Agra. Um, stop buying the processed food. Stop going to... Uh, patronizing restaurants that purchase this food, like Cheesecake Factory, etc., uh, these large nationwide chains, it's, they're all buying the GMO big agri-foods. So I guess we can vote with our dollars as well. And it's important to be informed. Otherwise, if a person goes to a grocery store and looks at a dozen eggs and it says free-range eggs and they're $1.79, it's difficult for that person to understand why those eggs are $1.79 and an eggs from a farmer market from the farmer who raised them are $5 a dozen. Yeah. But if they research a little bit and realize that free range on that on the $1.79 label is meaningless, it's an absurdity, and that the farmer who raised the eggs really did raise his hens in an environment where they roam freely in the pasture eating their natural diet, they'll see the difference and they'll recognize it's worth a few dollars. Yeah. I might have Starbucks a few times less often, but it's worth it to put that kind of food in my family. Yeah, and I think people also have to have realistic expectations about food prices. Um, that if they want the cheapest food that they can buy, um, that's the food that's produced by Big Agra, and that's the food that is not going to confer the health benefits of uh, the food produced by a smaller farmer or small egg producer or small dairy producer. Um, yeah, it's double, even triple the cost, but that is reflected in your health um, over decades of eating that food. You're going to either give it to the farmer 
or you're going to give it to your doctor later. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about your book, Don't Die Early. The Life You Save May Be Your Own. Uh, so what is your book about and why did you write it? Well, as you mentioned earlier, there's a ton of conflicting information out there flying at us from all directions. Don't eat fat, eat fat, eat grains, don't eat grains. Don't worry about your blood glucose unless you're a diabetic. This is what causes heart disease. This is what benefits. And it's easy to just go absolutely mad trying to figure it all out. And someone who finds themselves waking up one day and saying, I want to be healthier. I want to live a healthier lifestyle. Where do they begin? There's just no way to sort through this in any meaningful way. So I spent a couple of years of my life doing exactly that, analyzing, interviewing, researching medical journals that your doctor is probably too busy to read, reading hundreds and hundreds of studies, and putting together a book that bridges the gap between some vague, I'd like to feel healthy, be healthier, and exactly what does that mean? And the fallout of that was understanding the root causes of diabetes and heart disease and inflammatory disease, not in any vague, unspecific way, but really understanding what causes those disease and why they are so often overlooked today. And the last half of the book is a plan of action. It talks about specific tests we can have our doctor run or we can run ourselves to assess our condition and create a path for us uniquely tailored to our condition towards better health. So you talk about assessing heart attack risk in your book. That's one of the chapters. And that a lot of the tests today are ineffective for actually assessing heart attack risk. So why do heart attacks occur? Um, so why do heart attacks when we're seemingly free of risk according to the typical tests one receives with their doctor? Very simply because the tests that most doctors run today look at indirect indicators. They'll look at your blood pressure, they'll look at your lipids, they'll look at your family history and ask some lifestyle questions, and they'll try to turn that into a risk of heart disease. And based upon their perceived risk, they'll offer advice about how likely you are. Or they might run a stress test, which is quite inaccurate at predicting a heart attack risk. According to noted cardiologist William Davis, these these standard tests that cardiologists run fail to predict heart attack 90% of the time. And it's simply because they're looking at indirect indicators instead of looking at the true issue. Do you or do you not have coronary artery disease? We look, use an x-ray to check our leg to see if we've broken a bone. We look at uh, cells under a microscope to see if a woman has cervical cancer. But when we ask about heart disease, we don't look at the heart to see if we have coronary plaque. Yeah. Yeah, that's so odd. And also, isn't, um, aren't, I know Dr. Jeffrey Gerber had talked about some tests he was doing where they can see, they actually look inside the artery. And this is a, a re revolutionary test where they look at inside the artery to see if there's actual blockage. Mm -hmm. And it, it might amaze most people to know that blockages that are even assessed by the more advanced means like um, coronary angiography, blockages only amount to 30% of heart attacks. The other 70% are not caused by coronary plaque that forms blockages. Yeah. It's simply that that's what we're best to examine, best able to examine. So that's where we focus on blockages. Yeah, and I've heard a lot of, um, some heart attacks can be precipitated by extremely low magnesium levels as well. And a lot of heart patients, they desperately need to supplement magnesium. 
Mm-hmm. Most of us are deficient in magnesium. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about one of my favorite topics, which is cholesterol. Because, um, you know, my father, um, you know, had heart disease as well, you know, the whole metabolic syndrome, and he was on statins, uh, the cholesterol-lowering medication for 10 years, and I felt like it was a gateway drug for him. Um, because the statins destroy health, they destroy your body's ability to protect itself, because cholesterol is a protective uh, a nutrient. It's a, it's a protective um, uh, substance that we need to repair our bodies. And so um, there's so many misconceptions in the media about cholesterol, uh, which I think are all propaganda spread by Big Pharma to sell the number one profitable drug, you know, statins. So what is the truth regarding cholesterol and why do we need it to be healthy? Cholesterol is vitally important. It is so important that virtually every cell in your body has the ability to make cholesterol. It is a principal component in cell membranes. It's the backbone for most every hormone in your body, testosterone, estrogen, vitamin D, all of these hormones in your body are dependent upon a cholesterol background. It is very simply the principal building block of our bodies, especially of our brains. Yeah, I mean, our brains are 25% cholesterol. I mean, we, you know, that's a side effect from my father. He was a brilliant man, voracious reader, and towards the end of his life, because he'd been on these statins for so long, I mean, he could barely think. He had such horrible brain fog because you you just don't, your brain doesn't have what it needs to work anymore. I, I Folks like Gary Taubes have written extensively on the the perfect storm of factors that came to be to drive home this low-fat cholesterol is bad myth that has taken such a damaging foothold in our society. But like you alluded to, it's it's economic. It's the, the massive marketing machinery of those who benefit financially from the sale of statins. The fact that continuing education for physicians is overwhelmingly provided by pharmaceutical companies, it helps this anti-cholesterol pro-statin message take hold and propagate for the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, it's amazing to me. I have client after client after client that um, when I have a consultation with them, no matter what they have, they have diabetes, doctors written a statin, even if they don't have high cholesterol, it's just per- to prevent high cholesterol. Um, if they're obese, they're given a statin medication. For They're just kind of across the board. Um, so many physicians are just writing these prescriptions. If, if there's any truth to the assertion that lipids play a role in heart disease, I believe it's that the characteristics of our lipid particles are far more important than the total amount. Yeah. And that is, you know, LDL has been vilified across the board, but it is a hugely important component, except it has the potential to be extremely small, dense LDL particles that can lodge into arterial cracks and fissures, cracks and fissures caused by inflammation and elevated glucose levels. And these oxidized, small, dense LDL particles that lodge into cracks and fissures can become the basis for plaque formation. That is a testimony to me to the benefits of large, fluffy, healthy LDL not that LDL itself is bad in any way. And there are even cardiologists that say heart disease is primarily a disease of glycation, elevated glucose levels, inflammation, and oxidation. And if you control those three, your lipids don't matter in the slightest. 
So it's, it's obvious to me after years of research now that cholesterol has been so misrepresented to us that it, it's unsurprising that heart disease is so rampant as it is today. Yeah, and one of the ways to control cholesterol to prevent the, the items you just mentioned are to get rid of most grains, sugar, and oxidize oils like the, the big industry of vegetable seed oils and things like that. Those things uh, produce uh, the problems that lead to the problems with the cholesterol. There are many people who say that inflammation is the root cause of virtually every disease we face. And I believe the single biggest factor to inflammation is the incredible levels of omega-6 in the average American diet, primarily because of industrialized oils that have been promoted as the healthier oils like coconut oil and avocado oil and even saturated fat from healthy animals has been demonized and vilified so extensively. Yeah. Yeah, now people are shocked when I say they can't have canola oil. <laughs> they just have been sold by marketing employees that that's, uh, that's healthy. And it's actually the exact opposite. Crisco is crystallized cottonseed oil. And it became a food product after electricity and electric lights became prevalent and the manufacturers of candles saw their market disappearing. Cottonseed oil was a, a primary component in candle manufacturing at the time. So they, in a brainstorm marketing brainstorming session, said, let's just turn it into a food product. And then we'll still have a market for our cottonseed oil. There came Crisco. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's like cooking your food in plastic, essentially. It's, it's amazing to me that uh, people, they, they thrive on it. Like it's, it's one of the best-selling products. It's in all fast. It's in all processed foods. All fast foods. Unbelievable. So let's talk about um, your chapter in the book on diabetes. Um, I was recently. I wasn't surprised when a friend of mine was diagnosed with diabetes. Uh, you know, she had a terrible diet. Uh, you know, not a healthy lifestyle. And so I really just don't understand why more people aren't checking their blood sugar levels, especially when they're at risk, uh, because it's such a simple test to do. And you mentioned in your book that you think that everyone should be aware of their blood glucose levels. So can you explain why and what some of the misconceptions are about glucose levels? The reason everyone should be aware of their glucose level is very simple, because every single time that a person's blood glucose is elevated, they are suffering harm. Their body is being damaged. Now, some research says anything over 100 milligrams per, per uh, deciliter or 120 or 130. Some even say 95. The number might differ for individual to individual. But there's no debate that every time your blood sugar spikes, you are suffering harm. And in the most cruelest of ironies, one of the first part of your body is to be damaged by elevated glucose level are the pancreatic beta cells, the cells that produce insulin in your body, which means it is very fast becoming a self-serving spiral where elevated glucose levels damage your pancreas's ability to produce insulin, which cause elevated glucose levels, which accelerates the death of your pancreatic beta cells. That is very simply the progression of type 2 diabetes. The misconceptions about glucose are abundant. First, most physicians don't realize and never counsel their patients against elevated glucose levels. And second, we only look at fasting. Even at an annual physical, they might look at a person's fasting glucose, and as long as it's below 100 or 110, they say, nah, don't worry about it, you're fine. 
Well, the body's going to do everything it can to keep your glucose at an optimal range, which means the fasting glucose is the very last thing to break. Decades after you're experiencing elevated glucose levels that are harming you in immeasurable ways, your fasting glucose will still be normal as your body strains to produce more and more and more insulin to keep that glucose level in its normal range. And by the time fasting glucose breaks, you're already a diabetic. That's just the standard test. That's the standard test all the doctors are using. They're not using any other tests, are they? For, sta- exactly, for standardized, no. standardized tests. That, you know, exactly. You go to your fasting glucose is fast and simple, so that's what they check. And even the ADA says that that's an equivalent indicator of diabetic health to the used to be the gold standard glucose tolerance test or, or anything else. But if we started looking at our postprandial, that is after we eat, glucose levels now, when we're in our teens or 20s and realizing when our glucose spikes and eat to avoid that, we're avoiding the damaging effects of elevated glucose on our body decades before traditional testing shows us we have a problem. Yeah, and by then all the damage is done and the disease, um, the disease spiral is just out of control. Exactly. Physicians rarely even check fasting insulin level. Now, if I have the same fasting glucose as you, but I have to produce five times the amount of insulin in order to keep that glucose in a healthy range, obviously I'm way more insulin dependent. That's a very important indicator, but rarely is that examined. Yeah. Yeah. I think people kind of have a false sense of security. They get diabetes. They can just take the insulin pill or insulin shots. That's a very difficult hormone to regulate in the body. And um, it's, it's changes every second. The body is constantly monitoring and changing it. And, uh, you know, even my father, he uh, was taking shots of insulin, you know, after every meal. And it got to the point where he was, he was taking 500 units of insulin a day. And even that wasn't controlling his diabetes. So uh, what I want people to know is that you can't feel like if you, if you get diabetes or diagnosed, it's not that simple as taking insulin. It's, it's very difficult to control, even under the care of a medical doctor. And my father's doctor couldn't figure out why he couldn't keep it under control. Um, but he was taking enough insulin to kill a horse. And he, when that happens, people are taking a lot of insulin. It's the hormone that tells you to store fat. And they get fatter and fatter and fatter and have even more trouble controlling their blood sugar levels. So, exactly. Like one of the lecturers said on the low-carb cruise, every fat cell in your body is an endocrine gland. And as we get fatter, it is causes hormonal disruptions that make good health even more difficult. The, uh, the role of insulin in the body is not primarily to regulate glucose. It's primarily a growth factor, which is why so many studies link elevated glucose and insulin levels with increased cancer risk, cancer of all kinds. So when you couple that with the American Diabetes Association's guidelines on blood glucose that, I don't worry about anything unless it's over 175 or 200. When you look at that advice and you see that even diabetics who try very rigorously to control their blood glucose, how the odds are stacked against them, and see, you can see why diabetic complications, one of which being heart disease, are so prevalent. And I think it's also telling that there's this clear disease process going on. 
Um, like, for instance, my father had it. He started the statins, and we know statins do cause diabetes in some people. And he has the diabetes, taking the insulin, and the insulin causes cancer. And so the insulin-dependent cancers. And then he died of his cancer. Or he actually died of his cancer treatments. Um, but I think there's a lot of people um, on this disease process path that starts with statins. So it's kind of all, in my book, it's all interrelated. We, we, I think one of the biggest problems that medicine has today is the fractionalized way that we view various disease, disease states. We have a list of 10,000 diseases that are on, uh, on daily headlines today. And each disease has its own culture, its own language, its own practitioners, its own medicine, its own support groups. And that causes us to ignore the fact that most of our diseases today share a common three or four root causes that are so preventable. Inflammation, excess glucose, oxidation. Um, these are core inputs that we're all failing to, to address we're focusing instead on the 10,000 different outcomes. That's not really the factor. Yeah. Yeah, and I think another uh, other two factors are mineral deficiencies and heavy metal and chemical toxicities as well. Uh, I think these are big contributing factors that promote uh, the under, underlying causes of so many diseases as well. And uh, I know with my clients, once we start correcting those imbalances, reduce the toxins and increase the minerals, their health symptoms start going away, just disappear, or at least uh, significantly reverse. The body has an amazing ability to heal and repair itself. Yes. If fed properly with micronutrients and minerals and if the damaging factors are removed. Yes. And so what are some of the, the things that you propose in your book to reverse the disease process? First is diet. It comes down to diet. Eating in such a way as to reduce inflammation and glycation is key. That means removing any food that elevates your blood glucose. As Jenny Rule in Diabetes 101 says, eat to your meter. Let your meter be your guide of whether you're eating well or not. And I don't, I don't care what anyone says in a, in a diet they recommend. If you eat that diet and it's, you're hitting 160 in your blood glucose meter, that's not a good diet. Yeah. Don't eat foods that promote inflammation. And you, most people would be surprised to learn that inflammation-promoting foods are probably the ones that have the American Heart Association seal on the side. Yeah. They're the ones with the cottonseed oil, the soybean oil, with all of the processed oils that are primarily omega-6 that re result in a diet that has 30, 40, 50 grams of omega-6 fatty acids a day and virtually no omega-3s. So when you just factor in controlling blood glucose spikes with a diet that's that's extremely low in carbohydrates and avoiding the inflammation from from grains and inflammatory vegetable oils it's probably the the biggest two steps you can take right there and factor in eating healthful foods produced locally in rich soils and organically without pesticides and have a higher nutrient content you start feeding your body the way it needs to be fed not with doritos and Cheerios and Twizzlers, the body will respond amazingly well. Yeah, yeah. Sounds, early, like, sounds like a family. Like <laughs> the earlier you can begin this, uh, ideally as a child, the better you're going to be. But if you're 45 years old, like I was, and you look in the mirror and say, something's got to change, the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago, but the next best time is today. Yeah. 
it's time to start planting that tree. It's never too late. I have clients that are, you know, 67 years old that are, you know, ready to change their diet and their lifestyle. And it's never too late. Never too late. So can you, I have one question I like to ask all of my guests. What do you think is the most pressing health issue in the world today? I think the most pressing health issue in the modern world today is that we care so little as individuals for our own health. We treat ourselves poorly and go to the doctor when something breaks, like we're going to the car mechanic and say, my, my check engine light came on, please fix it. I think everyone needs to make their own personal health their hobby for a while. And I'm not talking about obsessing. I wrote Don't Die Early for someone to read in one weekend and understand all of these issues that are flying around us that have so many misconceptions attached to them. And that would be a wonderful jumping off point to the works of Gary Taubes and the work of, of Richard Feynman, the, the biochemist who talks about the effects of, of an unfavorable diet on the body and, and Tom Naughton and, and, um, Jimmy Moore. No, Jimmy Moore, <laughs> of course. And uh, China Study, Denise Minger, yeah. her, her Death by Food Pyramid book. There's so much wonderful information out there that it doesn't take a lot of effort to make preventive health your hobby. Yeah. That's life-changing. You might have to forget about who's going to win on American Idol or who's dating who in, in Hollywood for a while. <laughs> But the benefits will be uh, unparalleled. Yeah, like if for, that's what I try to teach people on LiveTo110.com is that health is not merely the absence of disease or symptoms. And that if, uh, you know, any one of you find yourself like I did at about 35, I did not, I just didn't feel right. Um, I felt like I didn't, I, I didn't feel like I felt before. I wasn't really sick. I just, I knew something was wrong. And I knew that I didn't have the energy or the brain power, et cetera, that I used to have. And, um, and I, so I set about on a path to find out why. And so I urge all you listeners out there to, to listen to your body and heed that warning call be before your body breaks completely and you have a tumor or you have that high fasting glucose level or whatever the case may be. Don't wait. That's very important. So, so Rocky, why don't you tell the listeners, you know, a little bit more about you and where they can find you and your book? Well, my book is available on Amazon for the Kindle or in printed form. And it's also available on Apple's um, iBook site for the, for the Apple iPad. It's called Don't Die Early. And I also have a blog, don'tdieearly-book.com. And I welcome everyone to check it out. Um, I'm like I said, I'm just an everyday guy. I woke up one day frustrated at the misinformation and the confusion, and I said, "There's got to be a good answer out there, and I want to try and capture it, and I want to make it easier for anyone who makes once who's compelled to make that journey from where I am today to just being a little healthier." And it's never too early to start, and it's never too late to start either. Yes, yeah, I agree. Well, everyone, definitely go take a look at Rocky's website. He has a really good blog that you should check out. And if you want to learn more about the modern paleo diet and detoxification and how to heal your body naturally, you can go to my site, liveto110.com. 
And you can also check out the Modern Paleo Cooking Show. We have about 10 episodes up and about four more in the pipeline um, that you can see on my YouTube channel at Wendy Live to 110. And please, uh, if you've enjoyed what you heard today, uh, give the Live to 110 podcast a review on iTunes. I would appreciate it so much so that people can find me in the search engines. The more reviews I have, the easier it is for people to find me. And so I can deliver my message to help you guys to live longer, healthier lives. Thank you so much for listening to the Live to 110 podcast.